Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations from Season 3, Episode 27, our wrap-up of the Fifth Global Nash Congress that took place in London on May 27th and 28th. This conversation includes Louise's interview with Rick Groby of Julius Clinical. At the conference, Julius Clinical discussed its GRIP program, an effort to conduct 10,000 VCTE tests with individuals in primary care offices, currently targeted for 1,000 individuals in 10 European countries each. The study will determine prevalence of NAPLE and NASH in these primary care populations while assessing the impact of the guidelines Julius is using to bring patients into the study. This conversation covers the scope and goals of the project, along with the need to find more patients for clinical trials and the parallel need to create guidelines that make medical and economic sense in primary care practices, at least in the major European countries. The Fifth Global NASH Congress brought together industry, academic, and patient advocates in a forum that covered an array of issues and perspectives. We've tried to bring you an assortment of these in the episode 27 conversations. So sit back, listen, enjoy learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. We're going to speak about the GRIP program. If you can introduce yourself for me and just tell me a little about what you do and what the GRIP program is all about. Julius Clinical Chief Scientific Officer Rick Groby. Yeah, I'm not an NASHAS expert, uh, but i uh, been working for decades in the cardiometabolic space, so it, it does rhyme. I've been trialing with new medication in diabetics and hypertensive patients and patients with acute coronaries, and, and these are overlapping phenotypes, so there's no doubt. So when Nash came on, I immediately became intrigued because it turned out to be somewhat of a separate pathophysiology, but not entirely, and clearly a, an emerging problem, emerging increasing rates of obesity and diabetes and so on. But then very much in, in the hands of hepatologists and gastroenterologists and focusing very much on liverware as if, if you look at what happens to these patients, their greatest risk is probably not hepatocellular carcinoma, but it's getting a stroke or a heart attack. So that sort of attracted me to this problem. And then we started building within our company, which as I said, is an academic spin-off. We started building expertise, assembling our advisors around us and increasingly felt that major improvements could be made in finding those patients by reaching further out in the community. So what Grip on Nash tries to do is, is to get grip on that number of patients that's just under the water currently because they are being taken care of by GPs and not necessarily recognizing that there is more than their diabetes or there's more than their hypertension or their hyperlipidemia or their kidney disease and just not aware of the nature and size of the problem. So bridging that those two worlds um, by bringing centers of excellence with real expertise in contact with GPs surrounding them and trying to find new pathways of targeting the right patients. Underway, learning about diagnostics and improvements thereof. As we spoke yesterday briefly, so we're collecting loads of material just to be prepared for the next wave of metabolomics or epigenetics that might help to sort out not only the diagnosis but also subphenotypes because it's probably, as always, as diabetes, as heart failure, a uh, heterogeneous group of patients with different subphenotypes that might respond different, have different prognoses and different comorbidities. So it's a learning exercise. At the same time, it's also a way of finding patients for intervention research. So can you just describe the format of GRIP? Because it appears to be based on guidelines and that interpretation of implementation, yes. which whilst guidelines are written, they're often not implemented. No. 
And that's because routine care is not necessarily equipped to implement. In this case, it's different because we are designing a grip on NASH and, and supporting that also financially to follow the guidelines. Mm-hmm. The only thing we've done, as I've shown, is that we bypass the step between FIP4 and FibroScan. So they combine that just to have, in spite of the comment was, uh, that was being made, that there may be the misclassification. Yeah, true. But we feel it's less likely with FibroScan than uh, with the conventional pathway. In the conventional pathway, biochemistry comes first, Fibroscent comes next, mainly for implementation reasons. Because mm-hmm. biochemistry is in the hands, could be in the hands of GPs or general internists, Fibroscan not. Also because of cost, because, you know, sending anyone to Fibroscan is raising costs. So we sort of took care of that. So we've simplified the guideline, the pathway, but we're also enforcing its implementation. I think that's certainly somewhere that I talked about on the podcast. If you find a liver at risk, you can do a blood test. If you find a blood test that's normal, you don't tend to find a liver at risk. Yes. And I think that's the opposite paradigm. And if you don't find the liver at risk, you don't find the cardiovascular problem, the diabetes. There are benefits to cutting out FIB4 en masse and you can do the cost effectivity of that as to how much the fit for. Yes. Everybody says it's free, but every blood test costs. True. So we've not sort of bothered to see if we could motivate the population at large for specialists to do this, but we simply implement that in a limited number of sites. So initially, as I showed, in a couple of countries, one or two sites per country, and, and all of these are, are sites that on the one hand have the knowledge to manage these patients and interpret their findings, but also are able to tap into the region for the GPs. Are you taking feedback from the GPs, how they find it? Was it more difficult? Because one of the concerns, certainly that always gets raised in the UK, is if I screen and find it, I've got to pay for it. And where's the money coming from? If I don't screen and don't find, I don't pay any money. But they avoid the cost that they are paying in their diabetes, their cardiovascular, so that the costs are just hidden in a different way. Obviously, that's it's true. intrinsic that primary care take this on, as that's where most of the poor liver health is. Yeah, that's true. So it's something we need to be aware of, and we are aware of that. So primary care physicians have been involved in the design. Mm-hmm. So it's not top-down, specialist-driven, but they took part and take part in discussions, and we will monitor along the way what their experiences are. So we're currently taking care of those costs that would otherwise also not be generated in routine care. So the costs that would fit into reimbursing schemes, and these may vary across countries, they'll stay where they are. Anything else, we will uh, reimburse to, um, to at least for the moment, not make that an issue, but we, of course, need to see how it works out eventually in terms of overall cost-benefit. And does this potentially mean that patients located with clinical trial inclusion criteria will be able to go straight from primary care potentially into clinical yes. trials because at the moment obviously that isn't the case they have to go through this whole rigmarole yes so that that opens up clinical open trials up. like exactly. donagra gli um elpa talk about getting people with poor livers to clinical trials quicker exactly currently there's this really um, like if you wish an elite or a select group that reaches that yep. it's full of hurdles yeah, so we need to take some of these out realizing that the bulk of patients will be in in the general population hmm. unrecognized so uh, effective, affordable, credible tools to get to those patients directly is, is really going to help the development of the drugs enormously. And are you collecting patient-related outcomes? Yes, we have the um, Liver Patient Association 
-hmm. European uh, Innovation Association yes, that's it. with Marco yeah. and that. Yes, exactly. So they are, they've endorsed this program. They will be our spying partners. Uh, they also judge the protocols and any material that we develop is, is going to pass it around their desk to have to input on it. And in the patients, we're going to collect prompts for just to see how patients value the, yeah. this whole trajectory. One of the good questions to potentially add in, if you haven't, is what made you change your behavior? Yes. Because it's, I think it's, you'll it's, find it's, a lot of people change their behavior because they see their fiber scan or because they see they don't respond to blood tests. No, they don't know. And, and, and in fact, I'm from a different field. And I, I, for example, I've developed over the years uh, different non-invasive imaging modalities for cardiac disease and, and vascular disease. And there too, people will not respond to a lipid value. No. But if they see a plaque in the carotid, it becomes a different story. So in that sense, imaging may help to motivate and make people compliant. We'll monitor that because as shown, there's a couple of months in between the first and the second fiber scan, in which they referred back to the GP for lifestyle measures. So we'll see what happens and we'll ask patients what they think about this. So in that is not a randomized comparison with or without imaging, which would also be interesting, I believe, but it's a different question to ask. Will you be looking at how many of those patients have online access to digital apps? Because sometimes that's the motivator. If they've got an app on their phone that talks about the nutrition in their diet, that's often more useful to a patient or a person than a GP. So you're, you're getting different information. So collating what information that person is getting can change the outcome. Well, it's, it's a good point. Might easily insert it in, into our questionnaire whether they have access to that. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to actively promote no. that. It's beyond the scope of uh, the project. But yeah, uh, we'll just put it in the questionnaire. Yeah. Because these are patients or people who are going to be invested in their own health and people who are invested in their own health statistically use health apps more even if it's noon or yeah although you know knowing the type of patient mm. I don't think that's that's perhaps the most health literate That's population. true. They've got, they're high risk, aren't they? Yeah, they, they wouldn't have come this far. Stephen Harrison says the low-hanging fruit. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, but they're, they're therefore very difficult to change behavior. In our experience with diabetic patients, mm. overweight patients, you know, they, they typically don't even consider themselves overweight. So is one of the outcomes really to also enrich the knowledge in primary care of who they should be screening? Yeah. Because that means everybody gets screened yes. Yes, and it's, it's an without element. doing a direct yeah sure so it's, it's, it's not really focused on patient awareness but for sure on, on primary care awareness and, and the nurses uh, are often the people who yes of uh, the course, diabetic practice, nurse or the practice, practice nurse so the practice nurses should be part of this whole uh, scheme there's, there's also like educational programs and vision for GPs and their practice staff to get them up and running for the screening so yeah I'm, I'm sure that some of the learnings will, uh, will benefit the uh, primary care community absolutely and from my perspective, now more into liver wellness and that, I think it's exciting and I'm waiting to see the results, obviously several years down the line, yeah. because I think that's where poor liver health sits. Yes, there's a low-hanging fruit for NASH and NAFL, so it'll be really interesting to see what the diagnosis levels of NASH yeah. or just inflammation. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see what dominates. It might might be an entirely different spectrum mm -hmm. if, if you have this source. So it, it will clearly show what the real face of NASH in the real world is, uh, at least I hope so. And it will also, therefore, potentially change the nature of intervention strategies because, again, I think that for the bulk NASH patients, the, the biggest risk is not a decompensated liver eventually, yeah. but all that comes along with it. Huh? But also you're putting fiber scan where I think, personally, fiber scan should be before 
health specialist. It's an assessment of anybody who could have poor liver health. Yes. It's not a liver assessment for only liver patients because we all have a liver. I'm excited. I think the programme, the way it's been designed, has got lots of benefits. Yeah. There was a question raised, obviously, about the risks of people with just on fibre scan. But I think some of the benefits for me are the ones who just have soft, fatty livers who find out more about their cardiometabolic problems. Exactly. And the improvements in HbA1c and the way they're managed in primary care, which I don't think has ever been done. No, it's exciting. I, I, yeah, well, yeah, thanks a lot. We feel too. Let's see what it brings us. We're certainly going to do it. We have enthusiasm from, from major centres in the country, and the data will be generated. So. And I think if it enriches the trial space with patients to go directly to the trials exactly. to get their biopsies, yeah. which are still required a lot sooner than it progresses, it's got lots yeah, of Yeah, because it's a bit sobering that there's, there's going to be potential interventions, be it all that I showed or new ones, but there's a shortage of patients to be studied. That, that is really impressive. While there's many patients out there. The pandemics really affect all of the lists for Fibroscan. There's a year of waiting lists in some yeah. trusts, if not longer, so yeah. where, the, where it's limited. But no, thank you for your time. Most welcome. And um, good luck with the program. Yeah, thanks a lot. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to preview International Nash Day. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.